Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. What is digital capitalism and how are women being harmed by it? Dr. Lilia Juini is the author of The Threat, How Digital Capitalism is Sexist and How to Resist. It explores the damaging impact of digital capitalism on women across the globe. Up until last year, Lilia was a research associate at the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. Now she's the lecturer in social innovation and strategy at the University of Bristol School of Management. I asked Lilia why she was moving more and more into the world of activism and what being an activist meant to her. For me, these two parts of my work and my identity, if you like, have always come together. I've always referred to myself as an activist researcher or both a researcher and an activist. And I think I'm not the only one in this. I think I belong to a new generation of academics, but frankly know that the world around us is burning. And, you know, as interesting as researching and teaching might be, it makes no sense to lock ourselves into the ivory tower of the academy. And um, yeah, it is our kind of ethical and political duty to try to do something to make the world a tiny bit better. So yeah, I'm definitely not alone in this. And I do think that academia is changing that way and that we're going to see through time more and more colleagues of mine adopting this kind of perspective and outlook. Then if you're asking me about my own personal story beyond this kind of context, well, I'm a survivor of gender-based violence. So this has usually affected what I do and why I do it. But as a researcher and as an activist, I suppose this has given me an impulse. This has given me, well, this has made me feel very deeply that I needed to bring my research in the world, outside the academy, and that uh, uh, I needed to make sure that my work would impact the real life of women beyond the classroom. So with that experience, with that activism mm-hmm. and having one foot in being an activist and one foot being in the world of academia, how has that led you then to writing your book, which is called The Threat, How Digital Capitalism is Sexist and How to Resist? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So I suppose you're asking it because uh, my book is certainly based on research and academic theory, but it doesn't read like an academic book. And that was a conscious choice. Had I wanted to write an academic book, I would have written it very differently. I would have used a, a different language, a different structure, and so on and so forth. And these are still a language and a structure that, of course, I do use in the academic part of my life, articles and so on and so forth. But yeah, based on on what I was saying a moment ago, I felt that it was really important to talk about these issues specifically. So the intersections between uh, patriarchy and capitalism and technology and the ways in which the digital revolution has impacted women worldwide in a way that was straightforward and accessible and understandable to as many people as possible. And so to me, the way of doing this was also through, if you like, a trade book, an academic book. So if you like, the book 
kind of uh, brings together these two aspects of my life, the research and the theory, the social science theory, feminist theory and so on, and the activism. So feminist practices and grassroots work, policy work, which is also part of what I do. And uh, yeah, it hasn't always been easy, I suppose. You know, I've been trained as an academic, so I've been trained to think and to write in a certain way. So I suppose it has been a bit of a challenge to strip myself of that and to try to communicate differently. Uh, but I have to say, I'm quite happy with the, with the result. And the way I've done it was also in itself influenced by my own kind of feminist background in the sense that one of the big lessons of feminism, if you like, is the idea of... Uh, starting from yourself, starting from the individual stories of individual women. Because if we look at my story, another woman's story, from the similarities across such stories, normally what emerges is a, is a tale of structural oppression. And so, yeah, I took this lesson to heart. And uh, my book starts with stories of women. Women we were very different from one another in terms of uh, sexual, racial, class background, geography, profession, and so on, but we all have something in common. So they're very heavily harmed, but it's kind of pernicious intersection of patriarchy, capitalism, and technology. And so starting from their stories, their very real challenges and, and problems and sometimes tragedies uh, through the help on my own uh, academic research, if you like, I try to to connect the dots and you know say a few things that I I feel it is important to say. So, how then does the intersection of patriarchy, digital capitalism, and gender based violence how does that manifest itself? Certainly, it manifests itself in a in a number of ways. So, in my book, I tell different types of stories. Some stories are stories of women who were and who are still today harmed through the use of digital technologies. So women who are victims or survivors of, say, non-consensual pornography. So the, the non-consensual sharing of intimate uh, sexualized images. Women were victims or survivors of uh, online gender-based hate speech and millions of other forms of online digital gender-based violence. But I also tell stories of women who are equally brutally harmed, exploited to be precise, while they do produce technology. So these are the female workers at all levels of uh, the tech industry supply chain. So I tell stories of... Uh, Chinese factory workers whose job is to assemble literally our smartphones and our tablets uh, and uh, will work in such, you know, undignified conditions, which are frankly reminiscent of those of a Dickensian sweatshop that occasionally they try to kill themselves. I tell stories of many different categories of female gig workers. So women who've offered their services through an app or a platform or another. And uh, I explain how and why they are exploited in ways that are both old and new. I tell stories of women who work directly for tech companies. Uh, you know, the tech industry being obviously a very male and white dominated environment. 
women, and especially women who come from a non-white background, have a very hard time in there. I also tell the stories of women who find themselves the kind of very, very bottom of the tech industry, supply chain. So, for example, I tell the stories of uh, Congolese women who were victims of mass rapes during 20 years of brutal civil wars in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, you know, one might ask, what does this have to do with digital capitalism and technology and so on and so forth? Sadly, it has a lot to do with it in the sense that these conflicts are very tightly tied to the extraction of minerals such as coltan or tantalium or gold or cobalt, uh, which are essential to make our digital devices work. I also tell stories of women who very simply are excluded from technology, from access to it. So they pay a very heavy price for the so-called digital gender gap. So yeah, once again, as I said before, different types of violence, of exploitation, of marginalization, but all connected by what I call the digital patriarchal capitalist, this kind of huge structure of oppression in which currently we all live enmeshed. You've used the verb exploit. You've used it ex- exploitation, exploited, exploiting. Clearly, this is something that is ongoing. But how would you define exploitation within this world that you're writing about? I mean, exploitation may take very different forms. I mean, I would say that exploitation and the exploitation of workers is sadly a constant of uh, many different incarnations, many different versions of capitalists that have uh, that we have lived throughout history. When it comes to digital capitalism specifically, or digital patriarchal capitalism, as I call it, some forms of exploitation are more traditional, if you like. So we are talking essentially of the violations of uh, uh, women's human rights uh, at the bottom of the tech supply chain. So, you know, the, the several examples I described, the factory workers, uh, the women involved uh, in the extractions of minerals, uh, the female gig workers, they're all, all offer examples of that. But there are also novel, more sophisticated forms of exploitation. So in the book, I devote lots of time and space to explain how, for example, social media platforms monetize online violence and, generally speaking, the suffering of women worldwide. So I devote lots of time and attention to explain how and why uh, it is convenient for social media platforms whose uh, business model, whose monetization strategy is based on the extraction of user data. Uh, to let circulate content that is controversial and so is likely to keep users literally hooked online for as long as possible to produce more data and to absorb more ads. And obviously, misogynistic, sexist content, just such as racist or abilistic content and so on and so forth, is just an example of this mechanism. So here we're talking of a different type of exploitation, which is, however, just as dangerous and uh, which deserves to be unmasked just as much. This kind of technology that we're dealing with these days, you know, around the internet, smartphones, the, the way that we access one another, it's relatively new, relatively speaking. And we are always finding new challenges and new issues and new horrible, dark aspects of, of human nature that, you know, no one really wants to be having to deal with. So 
you've described your book in some respects. I think the word you may have used is almost like a, a trade book rather than a book of academic writing. So it's a toolkit to help women. What tools are you suggesting women use to help protect themselves in this environment? Sure, that's another excellent question. So before addressing it, I just want to mention that my book is by no means a ludist book. And uh, my approach to technology is uh, by no means based on demonizing technology as such. What I say very clearly in the book is that digital technologies are neither good nor bad, neither emancipatory nor oppressive. However, they're not neutral either, because every technology is obviously bounded to, to reflect, to incorporate, and sadly also to multiply the ways of thinking and acting, and therefore also the injustices and the inequalities of the society in which that technology is produced. And so obviously today we live in a patriarchal and capitalist society. And so capitalism and patriarchy are both inscribed literally into the DNA of our technologies, of how they work, of how they are produced and how they're distributed. So technology is not the enemy in any possible way. But what I do argue is that we should reclaim it for good, for women and for all. And we should kind of put it back where it belongs, which is a in service of people and communities rather than just of commercial interest. Now, in terms of how we can do it, which is, I guess, the core of your questions. Well, the last part of my book, so the last three chapters of the book itself, are all devoted to answering this big $1 million question. What do we do about it? But I wouldn't say the strategies that I suggest are just aimed at women, because I strongly believe that it is not just uh, up to women to fix what's going on. You know, it's everyone's problem. It's society's problem. Uh, and so we all should take on to ourselves to, as I said before, to reclaim technology for emancipation. So, uh, well, in, in these last few chapters in my book, I say a number of things. First of all, I say that I think we should and we can envisage different types of technologies. Technologies that are democratic, inclusive, uh, respectful of human rights, non-commercial potentially, feminist technology, I dare say. And, uh, you know, while you and I are here talking about it, actually a number of these alternative technologies already exist. And in the book, I offer several examples of this. I talk of alternative non-commercial social networks for women only. I talk of cooperative platforms that are managed by workers themselves. Uh, I also talk of different ways in which users have been, in a way, occupying, uh, resignifying existing commercial technologies such as Tumblr and so on and so forth. So that's a first important aspect, acknowledging that this new type, this alternative type of technology can exist, that it already exists, and that we should invest in that. However, it is clear that in the face of such huge, huge problems, you know, again, violence, exploitation, marginalization at all levels, the response can't be just technical. The response must be political. So in the book, I envisage 10, I don't want to call them solutions, but 10 recipes, 10 strategies that we could follow to address such huge problems. I'm going to mention just very quickly a few of them. I think it is essential 
And it is essential right now to regulate the web, to make platforms and big tech accountable, not only towards users, but towards the people who work for them. We do have a, a window of opportunity to do it right now in this continent, especially. Not many people know that a year or so, the European Commission will be approving two pieces of legislation of humongous importance, Digital Markets and the Digital Services Act, which are going to have a great impact on so many aspects of what we're discussing today. Here in the UK, of course, the online safety bill is very close to approval. That's uh, another opportunity to, to, to legislate, to regulate on many of the aspects we are discussing today. I think another crucial battle concerns the breaking of digital monopolies. This is something, for example, that in the US, uh, women fighters such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of our fellow democratic lawmakers are taking on. And I think the huge concentration of economic, political and technological power in the hands of a few big tech actors is uh, uh, truly at the roots of what we are talking about. I think we should also have the courage to think or perhaps rethink fiscal policies uh, which concern the big tech industry, you know, in homage to, to a very classic logic, those uh, we make damages should be taxed for it. You know, the, the same kind of discussions that we are having concerning uh, the emission of CO2 could absolutely be applied to the tech industry as well. Moving away from uh, like policy arena specifically, I mean, obviously, I am a researcher and a teacher, so I would be contradicting myself if I didn't mention education as a, a crucial, crucial tool to address everything we're talking about. And when I say education, what I mean is uh, genially making uh, tools, toolkits, uh, as you said yourself, uh, to be understood as uh, almost like a digital self-defense weapon to literally everyone. You know, we should be talking about digital justice uh, and all its implications in schools, in universities, uh, in workplaces, uh, within the public discourse, and so on and so forth. There's a lot to be said about also supporting the, mo the mobilizations of tech workers across the world. There are lots of interesting uh, nascent, emergent uh, unions, or anyway, associations of tech workers across the world, which fight for fairer treatment, and uh, also to kind of demystify so much that is not yet transparent within the tech industry and its outputs. And so these are also fights that should be fought and that should be supported. In a nutshell, there is a lot that we can do and there is a lot that we can and should be doing right now. We started this conversation with you mentioning your own experiences and how your activism your experience with gender-based violence, your research. How does it inform the future after the book? <laughs> well, so the book has been, so it, it is just out in the, the UK and Commonwealth and English-speaking countries, but um, it was out first, it came out first in, in my native Italy, in my native country. And... Uh, I'm pleased to say that the reception it got really went beyond my expectation. It got lots of media attention, but beyond that, it really seemed to, to speak to people. So there hasn't been a day since the book came out that I've received emails very often from strangers saying, 
oh, you know, I've read what you wrote, I heard you speak, whatever, on TV, on the radio, somewhere. What can I do? Very often these people say, oh, you know, I'm, I am a lawyer, I am a teacher, I'm an engineer. I do have some kind of professional skills that I want to, that I want to leverage. What can we do? And this makes me hopeful because, uh, you know, I don't believe that any single book or any single person will change the world, of course. Uh, what changes the world is people's collective power to organize. And so this makes me think that my book has simply come at the right time. It somewhat intercepts people's needs, people's feelings, people's claims, if you like. So my plan, uh, if you like, for, for the next few months, and what I am doing right now in this very moment is trying to um, and not alone, of course, together with many other activist groups with which I collaborate and of which I am a part, I'm trying to sort of uh, uh, create connections between all of these peoples and communities and trying to see how all these very ideas we've been discussing today, so ideas towards reform, ideas towards mobilization and so on, could be put into practice. So yeah, this is kind of a general principle in my work. Every single thing I do, every single uh, academic article or book in this case or project to which I'm involved, I try to socialize. I try to make them not just about me or my interests, but about a collective process. Because uh, yeah, as I said before, I do think that it is only for people coming together that we can try to overcome the kind of challenges we're talking about. So Lily, we talked about personal experience. We talked about this journey. We have worked together in the past because you were part of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. I have a, a little awareness of the, I'll use the word challenges, but I know that that so underestimates what you've had to go through. But you've had some challenges being online and being an activist online. Are you happy to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. I think like any feminist activist who has some sort of online presence and pretty much like any woman <laughs> who's an internet user, I had to deal with my fair share of uh, online gender-based violence, you know, kind of online sexist uh, insults. Uh, once a social media page of mine was vandalized with pornography, which actually looked quite like child pornography, which made it even less pleasant, as you can imagine. That being said, there are other women, including women who are very close and dear to me, who deal with even worse things, you know, rape and death threat, uh, and yeah, different online behaviors through which uh, people try to, to exclude women from public discourse, because this is in a way what online violence is. It is an attempt to silence women and to prevent them from uh, taking space online. And online discourse is, of course, a part of the public societal conversation. But there is a thing that I'd like to say about that, and which I say quite explicitly in the book. So I think as a society, we have finally started a few years ago to have the conversation about this about digital gender-based violence, about how digital gender-based violence is a form of political violence, you know, how it is used literally to shut women up. It's, it's fantastic to see the progress that we have made. You know, I've been working in this space for a few years now, so I can see that today there is way more awareness around the problem than there used to be. 
However, what I find quite problematic and quite dangerous is that the conversation that we are having as a society still tends to focus mostly on the individual perpetrators. So we ask ourselves, who are the users, mostly the men, but not only the men, who are these people who attack women online? And I'm not saying this is not a legitimate question or legitimate perspective through which to, to look at the problem, but I think it's very narrow and very partial because at the end of the day, these individual perpetrators are just the top of the iceberg. They just pawns very often in a game that is much, much bigger than them. So another thing that I do in the book is trying to explain both the political and the commercial interest, the political and the economic mechanisms behind digital gender-based violence. So I try to explain, and, and I mentioned that briefly before, how social media platforms, for example, monetize online violence or, say, divisive discourse. Oh, I also talk about so many so-called, in academic jargon or internet jargon, shit storms. So kind of collective attacks against women online tend to be politically driven tend to be literally launched, organized, top-down by specific political actors with political interests. I mean, uh, there's people all across the world who built electoral campaigns on this. You know, I think of Donald Trump in the US, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. I think of uh, the use of Russian bots and generally speaking of online gender-based violence that elements close to the Kremlin have done over the last few years. So again, this is much, much, much bigger than the single perpetrator, much, much bigger to what happens to single women such as myself or millions of others. And I think that right now the time has come to try to look at that and to act upon this dimension of the problem. That was Dr. Lilia Dwini, author of The Threat, How Digital Capitalism is Sexist and How to Resist. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for the Masters in Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.